Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Okay, folks, uh, welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman, and this afternoon we have with us David Warrenoff from uh, the firm of Rubin and Rudman. He's a senior attorney partner in the firm. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Good. So just to start off and kick with the theme here, uh, even though it's afternoon, what's your favorite beverage of choice to get started in the morning? Well, I generally have coffee from a client and friend and also a colleague, a former lawyer who has a company called Dean's Beans, Dean's which Beans. is the ultimate in fair market and organic coffees. He's taken on all the big names and has been in Inc. Magazine, et cetera, et cetera. And they have phenomenal coffee. And frankly, I go for Timor Atsabe. Nice. Wait, where's, is, where's, where's that coffee shop? Is that, where, where is it? It's uh, based out of Western Massachusetts. It's a mail order predominantly company. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and the subscribers that are all over the country, um, most people who try it say it's the, some of the finest coffee that you'll ever have. After and what he does is he buys directly from the farmers as opposed to the cartels or the distributors who are in between. And as a result, he gets the best beans because they wanna sell those at the best prices. And he becomes effectively like a partner with them, with his company. Okay. Highly uh, recommend. Well, you're from, Pro you're from province, right? Yes. Please don't hold it against me. No, no. I remember you telling me that. No, no. I, so I, I, I know you spent time in Boston. I grew up in Boston and there was a coffee shop there that lasted quite a while in the throes of, uh, against uh, Starbucks at coffee roasters wasn't downtown Boston. I, I, I'm sure they all rolled up and went away by now, except for Dunkin' Donuts. Well, that could, Dunkin' Donuts it rules the roost in Massachusetts and yes. all of the Northeast. On the other hand, though, um, the coffee exchange in Providence is still in business. Nice. And that ironically was sort of the precursor because Dean had been, had been their attorney in the old days. And they formed a group called Coffee Kids to help deal with the, you know, the children of farmers who were living through the lunacy of international markets for coffee beans. Got it, got it. So, um, they're still around, but the the equivalent in Boston got rolled into Starbucks. Yeah, it's Sad. a shame that all those little independent coffee shops got destroyed by uh, Starbucks and the likes. Yes, and the, you know, as you know, there's a lot of broken bodies littering. <laughs> <laughs> there's only a couple of places where I mean, Seattle's best, and Pete's. I think coffee still, and some some of these just ended up on. Uh, on the shelves in uh, supermarkets now, but there is still some lo local, regional coffee. Right, and, and so he does his own roasting uh, on his premises. When I say he, it's, it's a company. Sure. Um, and uh, they, you know, they're uniformly paid much higher than uh, uh, minimum wage, that sort of thing. So he's got a very happy group of employees, but the whole pro idea is to go direct to the market. So he doesn't have to worry to sell to retailers or anything, he it's all subscription. There you go, D to C. That's the new buzzword, D to C. Yep. D, Dean Sycon is the lunatic who's behind it, who is remarkably like Robin Williams was when he was alive. Oh, nice. 
very funny, very interesting to be practicing yeah. law with, if you can imagine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I can. All right, well, let's sort of segue into into business and law. Tell us about uh, your practice, what kind of law you practice. Okay, so I'm essentially a business and corporate lawyer and do some entertainment work as well. And um, I started out, I got out of law school in 1987. Yes, in those days. Um, and uh, quickly went into both international practice and doing a lot of municipal bonds and corporate bonds uh, because those were hot areas. And I was at a large law firm. Um, I branched from there realizing that doing the really nuts and bolts municipal bond work and so on is all political. And as a young attorney, uh, I was going to be sort of at the bottom stages doing the work, um, but uh, to develop my own client base and my own group of people, I needed to be a little bit more broad based. So I started doing some work also in music law and films. I have the dubious distinction of working on any number of horror films um, uh, in terms of both documentation and helping them to find a producer, uh, et cetera, with the the screenwriters. Um, I have have been general counsel to the Peter Tosh estate, who was a famous reggae star who was murdered in 1987. And so that's spent, I've spent a lot of time in Jamaica over the years. and that's produced some interesting things. On the other hand, I also was involved literally in my first year of practice in 1987, 88, uh, in a setting up what was originally a contractual joint venture in China with a, an American stock exchange company, uh, and then ultimately became an equity joint venture. And it was based in Baoding in Hebei province, in China and was fascinating. What part of China is that? Is that on the southern China? Where is it's, that? No, it's actually eastern China, sort of central. Uh, Hebei, at that point, I, I will just tell you that Hebei had no roads to speak of. You just drove across essentially. And Russia. And well, yeah, and I, uh, <laughs> I stayed in the deputy uh, mayor's house because there were no hotels or mo- this is 1987, 88 China. Wow. And, um, it was fascinating because at that point, Baoding, which is now a city of, you know, 4 million, 5 million people, uh, their primary businesses were manufacturing those balls you used to find in the Chinese markets in America. Yeah. 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 Sure, sure, balls. Sure. You would roll them in your hand like yeah. Captain uh, the Baoding balls, they were called. That was like their biggest industry. And their second largest was producing ducks for Beijing. So it's not far from Beijing. And, oh, no, for, okay, got it, got it. Got it. Uh, well, just far back then, it was a you know, 13 hour drive. Yeah. No, I asked because I was thinking about like where the, all the high tech hub is on the s- southern part, right? On the, sh- on the Right. Shore. And uh, well, actually, it, it's weird. You can't even make it, a lot of low tech stuff is in the south in Shenzhen, which is the largest port yeah. in terms of export in the world. Um, but you find that like Hangzhou, which is where Alibaba and Tencent yeah, yeah. are from, yeah. that's actually very close to Shanghai. That's you know now a half an hour train ride from Shanghai. 
Uh, and once you get further north too, a lot of like the health industry is located in Tianjin, in Beijing, and also getting up into Shandong. Um, you know, musing things are to see the changes in some of those places. What used to be fishing villages are now cities of 4 million people. Well, they have many, many, you know, tens of 10 million people cities, right? In China. Oh, yeah. Wuhan. Wuhan is Wuhan. like the size of, is the size of, of Chicago. People right. in America think it's like a fourth tier city or something. It's like, no, it's huge. Right. And I worked on a project there to redistrict Wuhan back in the early aughts. Uh, a Boston-based international architectural firm uh, put in a bid to redistrict the entire city. Oh, set what up was the firm? What was the Boston firm? The Boston firm was called Sasaki and Associates. Oh, Sasaki, sure. And so, yeah, so if you're an engineer, you know of Sasaki. They, um, they, along with two European architectural firms, were in the finals, if you will. I know this sounds like a game show, and it kind of is in China, or was at the time. Hmm. And so we had to show up with, with lawyer in hand so they could literally sign a contract and they won it and they did the redistricting and thank god because among other things you know the 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 fire stations and the police stations and the hospitals were at all the wrong places it didn't really would not have existed for room to grow mm. and ironically when covid first developed there at least they had a city that made sense because Wuhan once was two cities that merged into one another, kind of like Budapest, you know, on two different sides. But as a result, it really was not coordinated. And Wuhan originally was known as sort of the Detroit of China. It's where mm. their fledgling car industry was. And so fortunately it was restructured. And so they were able to, the authorities at least were able to travel and to provide medical care and emergency services and first responders much faster after it had been properly redistricted and rezoned. And those were the days when China needed to have outside engineers and architects and others working on their projects because those were fairly nascent uh, industries in China at the time that uh, were still learning to grow. So the idea would be that they would get local people to work with famous American architectural firms or engineering firms or British or French or what have you. And the, the American firms were happy to get paid tons of money really quickly, but knew that they were basically building their future competition. And that's part of the problem of doing work in China. And we're doing it today, except now it's AI and high-tech oh, stuff, right? And, you know, it's... Same approach. Yeah, it's the same. Americans and European companies to come there, take the IP, and then... Right, and, and you know, for the for money up front, as it were, and a oh, lot yeah. of money. Funding, big they, grants, huge... They will do it. And also because it became a feather in the cap here or anywhere else in the West. To say, yes, uh, I have a client who worked on the, uh, the high-speed rail projects in China as vibration engineers out of Boston. Um, and, uh, you know, so that was something, yeah, did they make money on it? Certainly. Yeah. Do they make more money on dealing with vibrations at 9-11? Yeah, they got even more money for that. But this was something that was a major feather in their caps 
to say, hey, you know, yeah, we have a Tokyo office, but guess what? We just worked on the following in, in Shanghai and on the high-speed rail from Pudong Airport into Shanghai, and for that matter, from Shanghai to Beijing and so on. Yeah, it's actually kind of a brilliant strategy, um, what they have, because it's really yeah. part of the long game, right? And that's just it. They think, yeah. and, and this, was, this has always been something, even when I was but a wee lad, you know, people would say, you know, Americans in, invest on a six month return or what have you. And even at that time, the Japanese were notorious for, for investing on a five to a seven year term. Yeah. The long term. And long term. so, yeah, playing the long game is very much an Asian and particularly Chinese theme. And we're seeing it, except that now it's also been hastened and to some extent made more powerful by the Xi Jinping uh, reign, if you will. Well, when you have complete control, that's one of the benefits of, right? Yeah, and, and you know, that's one of the things is though that Xi is sort of scapegoated here in the West oftentimes, um, sometimes rightly and sometimes wrongly, but frankly, the whole project to put up billions, not millions, billions of video cameras all over China with facial recognition and AI and machine learning is something that's been in the works since essentially the 2008 uh, Beijing Olympics. Yeah, that's amazing. It's funny, uh, uh, you know, Warren Buffett, his partner, uh, Charlie Munger, if mm -hmm. you ever listened to his um, annual conference. Oh, he's... He's well he's part of pro it, China. He, he's very yeah. complimentary. Well, you know, because frankly, some of the stuff they're doing, yeah, they beat a lot of the West at their own game. And in something that was completely foreseeable to anybody who, who's been around business in this country, I mean, I witnessed in the Northeast of the United States the textile industry moving from here yeah, in here. the you know, Northeast. You know, and, and then relocated to South Carolina and to uh, the American South to save on land costs and heating costs and also on organized labor costs and so on. And then it ended up in South America and Central America. And lo and behold, it ends up in China. Right. Because that's the system here is you constantly look for the lowest costs. And China was able to do it from the other side of the world, which was pretty amazing. It is amazing. It's amazing. And, and, and sort of contrary to, to common sense, China was able to do this in one or two generations. Uh, meanwhile, another thriving democracy in Asia, India, you know, stuff still rots on the, uh, in the, on the ports and waiting on the docks. And that doesn't happen in China. Everything is done like clockwork. Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they're good at it. It's scary. Yeah, they're good. Well, again, I think it comes from total control. And, and India, India, I think, has done a pretty amazing job of sort of moving from back office to the front office. I mean, that society is changing very quickly to be incredibly entrepreneurial and innovative where they never were they were just the back office right and that's you know the the way it used to be called and this is one of the more interesting things is the smiley curve you look at the smile buttons you know with a little with the sure year. yeah 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 um the idea is that 
Traditionally, China was on the left side of the smile as you're looking at it. Yeah. And, and I should say, excuse me, they're at the bottom of the smile. Okay, yeah. That is the least profitable area. So they were doing all the production, the bottom of the smile, but the brands were coming from the West and the markets on the other side of the smile were in the West. Now China's moved up the smiley curve on both sides. Now mm -hmm. they're Chinese brands, not as many, but still some. And for that matter, they're Chinese markets. And India is doing some of the same. Ironically, what they have to deal with is uh, some degree of chaos yep. in India. And for that matter too, and this is a little bit harsh, but as somebody who used to work for the British government, they've taken British bureaucracy to entirely new astrological levels. So, um, yeah, no, I you know, saw that. I saw that in your background. I was going to ask you about your your thoughts on what happened uh, today with uh, Boris Johnson. Oh, uh, I, this was you know kind of a long time coming. This was kind of like watching uh, a you know an animal cooking slowly and boiling water, and suddenly <laughs> realizing that that's happening. What I do think is amazing is that um, he he still goes by the very sort of um, and now altogether too familiar idea of there's no such thing as grace, humility, or even saying, okay, I made a mistake. Owning up to it and then trying to find to live up to it. And instead, that defiant, I didn't know, and so on, all of which you can figure out, especially in the day of this technology, then that's, that's a really dangerous way to deal with things. Just deny, deny, deny. Guess what? that all you're doing is digging yourself in deeper. And that's what happened with him. And he lost his entire, well, not entire, but most of his cabinet. I worked for a labor member of parliament as his chief of staff back in the very early 80s, late 70s. So we're talking early Thatcher. Who was it? And that was uh, Leslie Huckfield, Sir Leslie Huckfield. And um, I, I, I remember asking a parliamentary question at, on the floor of parliament because I was chief of staff for him and he was out of town and I just wanted accurate unemployment statistics for all the major cities in England and Wales. And, um, and I phrased it that way. Can you please do that without having double counting? Because in Britain, and of course, as an American, I was rather naive about this and also as a young American, um, I, I noticed that there is double, triple, and quadruple counting of unemployed because you could register for unemployment going on the dole at any of the, you could go to youth opportunity programs, to jobs programs, to work programs, and register. And what happened is then oh, they are the government could claim those numbers are, are fictional because there's triple and quadruple counting. Yeah. So I just asked for the real numbers, and my re the response was perfect to my American friend. I'm sorry that information cannot be provided except at disproportionate cost. Next question. <laughs> and <laughs> that was my, my early lesson in politics. That's right. <laughs> A very uh, diplomatic response. With it was, wasn't it? And I'd like disproportionate costs. Yeah. How much is it costing all those unemployed people who are graduating <laughs> from high school without a job? Yeah. Oh, boy. Interesting. How, how long did you do that? How long? Oh, you I did that for a couple of years back, in, actually about a year, in 1980, 81. And how did and that happen? How did you get that? Uh, I was at Duke University 
uh, majoring in public policy and in history, and a minor in microbiology. Yeah, I was pretty scattershot in those days. And um, I originally was looking for a summer internship and decided that rather than going to work for you know an American agency in Washington, which Duke would put you into, uh, I want to do something much more interesting. So I got a listing of people who were coming from foreign governments to speak at Duke over a particular semester when I was trying to make my arrangements. And I met Leslie Hockfield uh, and he was speaking at Duke and then was going to be speaking at Harvard and at Brown. And as you point out, as somebody from Rhode Island, Massachusetts, um, I offered to also be his bag man, if you will, not just while he was speaking at Duke, but also he was making the rounds, getting paid for this, sure. and uh, went up to Providence and, and Boston and you know Cambridge. And at the end of this, after he told me from the get-go, there's no possible way I am going to hire a, an American to be my chief of staff, and it's not going to be just for a summer, it's going to be for longer than that. And then while I was bagmanning him, he said, yeah, I've been, I decided I want you to work for me, but you have to commit for a year. And I did. Sounds fascinating. And it was yeah. fascinating. And, you know, some of it, it was kind of amusing. I got sent to Mondragon in Spain uh, to work with what was then the largest workers cooperative in the West. Because the idea was that all these new, you know, all these traditional businesses were closing down all over the West in America, you know, the economy was terrible in 1980. Um, and a lot of people, uh, businesses in Britain were closing down, especially like the miners, things like that. Coal mining was just no longer necessary. So the idea was to find a way to have these businesses that were going to be closing down could instead be employee run with direction and assistance from the government, which be cheaper than having them go on the dole, go on to unemployment. And so Mondragon was what the Spanish government had developed. So I went there as the, as the representative of the British Workers' Cooperatives Party. That's not a parliamentary party, but it's just a party, a political party that's within, yeah. within that. It's a sub party, if you will. But it was hilarious because these guys are talking to me and they're like, you don't sound British. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> But it was a fascinating job and something that I look upon very fondly. But it also helped to frame my mind for deciding, no, I'm not going to go into politics. And so at that point, it was either law school or medical school. So, so tell me about that. Why did you, you decide to become a lawyer? Probably because I went to work in medicine initially. Uh, so after graduating uh, from my undergraduate, and I took some graduate level classes in history at King's College, but um, I, I went to work at Duke Medical Center doing activated coagulation time tests during open heart surgical procedures. And yeah, I mean, I got the job because a couple of people at Duke Medical School had been undergrads with me and been my lab partners. And so I did that for a couple of years and it was very, it was interesting. It was fascinating. I worked on procedures for famous wrestlers hmm. and for <laughs> the King of Jordan. But um, what, you know, what really came out of it was I 
saw how much pressure there was. Almost everybody I worked with had been divorced at least once, if not twice. And I realized that that is, you know, a pressure cooker. And at the same time, that was when uh, DRGs were first being initiated by medical insurance. So suddenly they wouldn't pay for a procedure that was always paid for, or they would pay mm -hmm. only a limit of X. Right. And in fact, everybody knows it's going to cost two X to do it. Right. right. So I sort of read those tea leaves, if you will, and decided to go to law school. And which is uh, a much less stressful profession. And it's also only three years. And, you know, you can make money <laughs> immediately. And I was young. I was married. And uh, so, you know, I, I had to sort of put my family or personal family type uh, priorities, uh, reset them. And so that was like, yeah, okay, this makes more sense. And I went to uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill Law School, because I got in-state tuition um, after, you know, uh, planning on going to either Duke or Columbia. But I decided, you know, at this point, I'm young, married, and I, my family really doesn't want to be paying for me to go to law school. And now I could afford to go to a top 20 law school, you know, and put it on a credit card. Very good. Actually, it's funny. My nephew, uh, who had gone to, he was a graduated from Illinois and decided mm -hmm. to go to, wanted to go to law school. He went to uh, William and Mary. He lasted a semester. He said, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. He lived in my, <laughs> he lived in my basement for about four months trying to like figure himself out. And then he went to UNC Chapel Hill. He got a, a master's in accounting and now he's a bean counter. He loves it. Yeah. And that's it. You know, and there you go. You know, it's like some, somehow or another you figure out, okay, I'm a, I'm a round peg. How come I don't fall, fit into this square hole? But you know, there are plenty of other holes in the playing board. If you will. Yeah, eventually you find your, your spot. I mean, before you, I had a guest and he, he, um, he knew he wanted to be a lawyer at the age of 13. Um, he became a lawyer. He uh, graduated. He had one job, but then he found the next law firm. He's been there his whole career and partner. So he, amazing how different, right? You find your spot immediately and you knew where you wanted. I mean, so, I mean, that's the other side. And I had no, and that's just it. I had no idea what I really wanted to do. One thing that did happen, law school is generally, you know, is preparation for a general practice, but it's really for going into at, at any of the major law schools, it's for going into practice at a law firm. Right. And oftentimes that tends to be a business or a real estate or corporate practice. Big business. Um, Big and, business yeah, right? yeah. Because, you know, and frankly, in when you're a law student and you're looking at litigation and you're seeing it's kind of like watching making sausage, you're, you're realizing that a lot of it is acting. Right. And but it's with people's lives in the balance. And so, you know, it's really easy when you're in law school to say, I don't want to do that, mm. even though that's probably closer to what you're studying in law school uh, in terms of the general track and also what you need to know to pass the bar. But I went to a large law firm that said, ye shall be in our corporate department and our international group. And oh, I you didn't choose that. That's just where you got replaced. Yeah. Oh, yep. okay. And and it was at a you know very uh reputable firm in their Providence office. Uh, but I was an entering class of 14 first-year associates starting just in the Providence office at that firm. So you can imagine it was a large firm. Yeah. And uh, um 
it, you know, what I learned from that was at least I was studying, or I should say working, but learning to practice law at a law firm back at a time when you could have a relatively broad-based introduction to business law or corporate law. We had what would they call the dance card, where you had to learn how to do a nonprofit, how to do a charitable institution, how to do work in a standard loan, in a real estate-based loan, in a business loan, et cetera, uh, how to, to uh, dissolve a company. All that stuff, which most people don't learn these days. Well, now you're very focused, right? But that was like a training program that the big investment banks used to do, moving around to the right. different, different departments. Exactly. And that was, there was a lot to be said for that. Sure. Because it makes, you know, makes you less afraid to, to, you know, venture out of what is ultimately your lane. Right. And that's important because law doesn't happen in a vacuum. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Right. Right. It's very contextual. You're right. So uh, you know, if, you can, if you can glom onto that context, then oftentimes you can think outside the box and make yourself more valuable than just somebody who's pushing a pen or pushing papers. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you can take what you did in one context and apply it to others. Most things are transferable and kind of, you know, the same laws of the universe apply in most places, right? Yes. Yes. And but that's why as a result to be able to stand back and see the forest right. or the trees is really very valuable. And that, you know, there are plenty of good lawyers who can draft a really good contract. I like to think I'm one of them, but I'm one of tens, hundreds of thousands. Okay. Whatever. So what so so is having that big picture uh, perspective a good a skill that makes someone better than others, you think? Yes. And it also you've got to be comfortable enough to be able to think outside the box and to know that you're not, you know, you're, you're not clawing up some absolutely absurd path, but rather this is what works. And I'll give you an example. Yeah. And this is a China one. So it sort of plays into this whole thing. Sure. Is um, clients are a uh, educational company based out of Boston that makes educational toys and books and so on, and has been in business for a hundred years, hundreds of years, okay? Um, and much like those businesses now, rather than making things here in the United States, it's contracted out to folks in China, in, in uh, you know, in Guangdong, and uh, that's the South. And client had registered their trademarks in Europe, and in the United States, because those were the primary markets and Canada and Australia, you know, the Commonwealth countries. This is back in the late aughts, early 2010s. And client contacts my, my law firm and says, we've got a problem. Our manufacturers in China have registered our trademark in China. I'm like, interesting. And they said, and now they want to charge us a 15% charge hmm. on, uh, on our products that we buy from them because we have to pay them for licensing use of our own name. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm talking to them about it. And I'm explaining to them that, you know, they really do need to register in China because it's all being manufactured in China. Now it's too late. 
And uh, I was explaining also registration in Taiwan, which China considered to be China, but Taiwan doesn't consider to be China. We won't get into that right now. But um, and, and ultimately, though, when they're, how, how do I get out from this? And I said, I, I thought about it. I said, let's literally let me think about it for a little while and I'll call you back. And I called him back and I said, I need to talk to your manufacturers. That's fine, but the, you know, how's your Chinese? My Chinese is Buha, Metsamet. Um, and so I said, you know, Wusha Bandan, I'm an idiot. But um, I said that um, I will get my significant other, my girlfriend, to be on the phone with me. She's from China and I will talk to them. And they said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to threaten to take all your business away from them and take it to Vietnam. And they said, really? Do you know manufacturers in Vietnam? I said, of course I do. I'm an international lawyer. And Vietnamese are very happy to compete against the Chinese. Yeah, trust sure. me. And the Chinese despise business going to Vietnam. So well, I get on the phone with them and I said, okay, what we're gonna do is ask for all of our dyes and casts and everything for manufacturing this stuff, send it back to us and we're just gonna send it to a manufacturer in Vietnam and you guys can do whatever the hell you want with the name in China, but we're not planning to sell our products, which are in English anyway, into the Chinese domestic market. And they're like, so we're going to lose millions of dollars of business from your clients? I said, sure, you play silly buggers like this. And that translates reasonably well into Mandarin. Uh, then we're just going to move it to another manufacturer. Fine, live it up. You got the name in China. We'll make sure that, you know, uh, none of our distributors sell in China. And they're like, wait, wait, how about we renegotiate this? I said, yeah, how about it? So I told them that we would continue to do it, but only as consideration if they would assign the trademarks that they registered in China to us. And I would want to review the assignments to make sure that they're enforceable mm -hmm. and that's what we did so that's how you got out of a really sticky ugly situation quite quickly and quite cheaply but with the ability to say that they knew that by playing games like that they didn't really have the leverage interesting that's, that's what comes with years of practice you know yeah yeah no and, and knowledge of the market I, i'm sure many um u.s businesses that go over they don't don't have that experience they don't have the right they don't know to how to apply that kind of leverage. Right. So I will explain one thing that, and again, I'm just going to do this in the China context only because it's so palpable. Yeah. I think to the general public is that, you know, a, a small business or medium business might suddenly jump on the bandwagon. Even now, I know it's a little late. It's a lot late actually, yeah. but you know, say, Hey, you know, I can manufacture, I could get this stuff manufactured in China for, you know, 20% of what it costs me to buy it from manufacturers elsewhere or to try and do it here. And invariably, they go running to Alibaba, which is traditionally where you would find sources of products, goods, parts, what have you. Yep. Uh, don't know if you've ever been to Alibaba, but you know it is sort of what generally Western businesses do. It's a trap. It's a trap. 90 plus percent of the people who are advertising on Alibaba don't manufacture any of the stuff they claim that they do. They're just an agent. They're somewhere in the middle. Just They're an agent. Yeah. 
And so what happens is they're meeting with other agents, all of whom are taking their pieces off the top, ultimately with a manufacturer, so that the company that you think is a real live manufacturer with you know, premises that are doing real manufacturing in, uh, you know, in Guangzhou or in Shenzhen or anywhere in Ningbo, it turns out, no, these agents are basically like a PO box. And that's being gentle. You know, oftentimes they're like a, a, a crappy uh, house that has a, an address and nobody home. And what happens is you order $5 million worth of parts and they come in and most of them are deficient or they're the wrong color or they're the wrong size. I said it had to be in, you know, US inches, not in centimeters or what have you. And it comes in and then there's nobody to sue. There's no recourse. Because you, no you got a couple of layers of agents. Yeah. Right. And you're stuck in the Alibaba trap. So there are companies out there that literally have boots on the ground in the United States, in Australia, in Britain, or in Germany, or what have you, but also in China. And they can go do the due diligence and find out if your so-called manufacturer there who's making this part or that is really doing it. And if they are able to be held to account. That's really useful. But by going to Alibaba, you're taking the easy way out and ultimately screwing yourself. And taking risks. Yeah. Actually, my son, believe it or not, and, and a lot of his buddies, they've played that little game where they sit in the middle as well and buy yeah. goods from China and through whatever these agents are, and then they resell in the United States. Right. And so they're just becoming yet another agent. And others. And it's profitable. It's amazing how much margin there still is to do that. And, and you know, the term of art used for it is very deceptive it's trading oh right. i'm involved in it. trading it's like the hell does that mean you know are you swapping baseball cards yes well. <laughs> but you know so that's it and you get ended you know ends up that all those uh parties in that chain are effectively protecting the manufacturer from any liability yeah that's right yeah that's right interesting so it's it's interesting and that's the alibaba trap I have a, a well, the problem is you got if you really want to go direct to the manufacturer. I have a friend who had a, a embroidery business where he did source it directly from a factory in China. I mean, he's right. literally, as you described, literally like going on like a uh, hand pedal cart to like drive for hours to get to the, the factory in China to see them yeah. and with somebody with him to help, you know, translate because nobody there was speaking English. And that's that's it. And for that matter, then reading the books, it's in Chinese and it's it's kind of like the Chinese restaurant syndrome that this was a popular thing out in other parts of the country, too. But is the sudden dawning that, you know, Chinese restaurants have multiple sets of books, the ones they show the local taxing authorities, the ones they show the family and investors, the ones that they show, you know, other businesses or whatever, yeah. so that they can show crappy books when it's to their interest, like to the tax authorities, and they could show that they're making trillions of dollars to, to investors. That's funny. I think I've heard that before in the news recently. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it happened even at the pres presidential level. In this ah, what do you know? But um, so <laughs> I, I, I got involved in music law through a, uh, a early on, I had friends. I, I also play guitar and harmonicas and did a little bit of recording, but it was like, no, that's not going to be my future. 
I did have the dubious distinction of playing with the largest all harmonica orchestra in the world based right here in Boston, the Cambridge Harmonica Orchestra, which was created by Magic Dick from Jay Giles Band and a guy named Pierre Beauregard. And uh, at one point there were like 200 some odd members. Nobody knew exactly how many people would show up. And it became, it was hilarious. It was like the ego filled up wherever we were playing. It was like, if you were playing on the Charles River, it would reach out all the way across to Ireland. Right. But um, it, was, it was kind of amusing. But anyway, I got involved with clients who were trying to get payment out of a well-known British band uh, who, with whom they had done some recording and done arrangements. And then that, that famous musician and his record company just decided to put out his own um, very beautiful uh, video on MTV in the UK. And, but it was my clients playing on it. So I went to go visit him while I was in the UK. And you know, while sitting there, he just wrote out a personal check for a hundred thousand pounds on a private bank, Coots. And so I was able to present that. And that's when I realized, you know, I don't wanna be a music lawyer. I don't wanna be the cigar chomping guy who goes, eh, I'll get you a record contract, no problem. <laughs> I, you know, that, that's, not, that's not what I wanna do, but they do need to have people who can go and deal with literally the dollars and cents of it and for that matter, finding the contracts and saying whether this works or doesn't. Yeah. And that ultimately led to my being general counsel for a, the estate of one of the most famous reggae stars of all time. And, you know, that was an interesting thing because you learn a lot. Um, well, there's Peter a lot of IP at risk there, right? I mean, you're, I mean, rights is so much theft and pirating and Oh, and, and for that matter, too, it's how to maximize it. Right. Because, you know, record companies aren't making the money they used to. Yeah. It's all going on Spotify. You know, it, it's all streaming. People are listening to YouTube. Um, but what's happening, and if you're dead, you can't go touring, which, you know, works really well for Sting and for Elton John. But for those who are no longer alive, it's not so right. beneficial. Yeah. But they also have the general intellectual property that's associated with them and their causes. So somebody like Peter Tosh, that could be cannabis, that can be equal rights and justice and Black Lives Matter. And so those become very valuable and useful assets in an economy that didn't even exist in the past. Mm -hmm. So suddenly it's worth new money, amounts of money in different ways than it was ever foreseen. Well, the whole move is going towards, you know, Web3 and uh, NFTs where you can go, again, back to the D to C, yep. direct to the consumer. So you can monetize your works much more right. effectively. And right, in, in a way that you never dreamt, because who would have dreamt that there would be a burgeoning cannabis economy oh, yeah. in the United States and potentially in Europe? And yet here we are. Oh, yeah. So it's all about thinking ahead and thinking about how to make this work in a particular paradigm because the paradigm shifts. Paradigm shifting big time. I mean, this whole decentralized approach. Right. And, and, and the NFT world is a really interesting one because that's got multiple shifts in it. You've got the idea that it's using blockchain technology, obviously, yep. but you do have the question of who owns what and what restrictions apply and whether an artist or their estate can apply restrictions after you've already purchased it from a proper, you know, a piece of art 
the original from a proper dealer. Mm -hmm. But when the estate says, we're not going to allow people to NFT it or what have you, that can be a major impediment. Mm. And, you know, because even if it's not necessarily enforceable, the market's going to hear it and going to say, eh, I don't want to touch those. Then you have the issue of most NFTs are purchased. In fact, virtually all are purchased with cryptocurrencies. Right. What happens if you're paid in a cryptocurrency that now has lost 80% of its value? So, you know, there are, like I said, shifting paradigms and shifting influences in the whole process. Absolutely. But I don't think that NFTs are going away. And no, I think they're, they're not. They're not. It's early days. It's going to get, it'll, it'll stabilize. But I do think it's going to be the future. Way that and I, I, I do too. And I'm telling you that, you know, I work with a client out of Atlanta who was deeply involved in early days of hip hop, both as a DJ and as a performer. And, uh, you know, was friendly in the whole New York. He was the first New York DJ in the hip hop space. So he's got a lot of stuff that he's collected over the years, all mm. of which is potentially uh, able to be NFT'd and we're working yep. on it. Oh, good, excellent. So it's like, this is going on. And you, what you do is you try to find ways to minimize the impact of shifting values of the, the currency being used to pay for the NFTs. But at the same time too, the world is offering many more ways to sell your NFTs or to market them. Yes. And that is interesting because the marketing is even coming out of like the traditional uh, auction houses, the Christie's of this world. Yep. So yeah, that, that's all, that's a whole other topic. Well, listen, I, I, let's put a wrap on this. It's been really okay. interesting. You're a, you're a great, uh, you got a lot of stuff to talk about, which is, which is <laughs> what happens when you get to be old, you know? <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, if somebody wants to learn more about you and your practice, uh, aside from your website, I mean, any last words, what do you want to share and what's the best way to connect with you? The, well, the best way to connect with me is directly through my law firm. Okay. Uh, it's Ruben, Dave Warnoff at rubenandrudman.com or Ruben Rudman, no and in it, I'm sorry, .com. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I went to this firm is it's small. I was at, you know, a national firm prior to this, and I've been at several national firms and yep. international firms. Um, but this gives me a lot more ability to be flexible on how to bill it, how to define what I will and won't do, et cetera. And that sort of involvement you lose at a huge, ginormous, you know, big law firm. This is a firm of a hundred some odd lawyers. So it's, you know, I have a lot more leeway to do that. And that's important at this point in my career. Got it. Excellent. Okay. Good. Excellent. Well, good. This has been great. Really interesting. And um, so again, once again, we had David Warnoff from Ruben Rudman. And uh, this show is sponsored by Emotion Track. We are a legal tech platform that leverages AI uh, to collect uh, sentiments that lawyers use for uh, mediations and jury trials. Thank you very much, David. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, really a lot of fun. Thanks.